Hi everybody and welcome to the next episode of the Biodiversity Podcast by Teasels and today I'm, I'm really glad to be joined by Paul Hefferington of Bug Life. Um, Paul is the Director of Fundraising Communications at Bug Life and yeah it's great to have you on Paul. Hi Paul. Hi, Hi Dan, great to meet you good. Uh, in semi-person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really good to be on here to start talking to people. It's uh, I've been at Bug Life now basically nine years, and before that I was at the Woodland Trust, and before that I've actually worked in uh, international development at uh, Save the Children and Water Aid. So a bit of a varied background, uh, but I've also been very much a conservationist and an organic gardener, you know, ever since I was sort of young enough or, or old enough to go out to a garden and start claiming a patch of the garden as my own and growing what my parents called the weeds. <laughs> very good, very good. So um, so remind me how long you've been at Bug Life for now, Paul? No, I've been at Bug Life basically nine years now. Wow. And uh, and how have you found and how have you found that journey? Uh, you know, sort of dealing with you know p putting bugs um high on the agenda i mean how have you found that well i took the step of moving to bug life because i thought this would be an exciting challenge for me and it has been quite a challenge uh, but we have you know gradually got there and you know we certainly cut a fairly high profile in the media nowadays uh, which mm. we're really pleased about and although we are a bit of a Mr. McCorber charity in that as long as we get one pence more in than we're expending, we're happy. The last couple of years, we've actually done quite well and, and been able to grow the organisation in a sort of sustained manner. So yeah, things are now start, starting to really look up. But yeah, it was a real sort of challenge to come into what was effectively a brand new post to start a whole new development and section up for the charity. Uh, and we've now moved to a situation where roughly a third of our income is not tied to projects. So, Paul, you were you were um, just saying just now that um, over the last couple of years, you found that uh, Bug Life has been more sustainably funded. Is that, do you mind me asking, is that through sort of private donations or is that sort of uh, corporate donations as well? Well, we have a, a fairly good mix of donations. We are a membership organisation and uh, our members through their membership and through donations do contribute a fairly large slice of income. We get a small amount of corporate income. You're probably only talking maybe 20,000 per annum in corporate income though, so it's quite low. Uh, we also get some unrestricted grants and trust funding and a very small amount of statutory funding in Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, but none in England. Interesting. Interesting. So, so being there nine years now, um, do you want to tell everybody about some of the some of the challenges you've had, but also some of the wins that Bug Life uh, have had? Because again, watching what Bug Life are doing from afar, it's been nice to see that you you know you make you've been making some headway uh, on certain issues. So, do you want to tell um, tell the viewers? some of the challenges, but also some of the successes that you've had? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges that, that we face is that people often overlook insects and bugs in general. Uh, they don't realise how important they are for them. Uh, and certainly when I first started, there was very little understanding of it. I think nowadays most people understand the role that pollinators play, but there's yeah. still a real lack of understanding about 
the role that detrivores play, the role of things like dung beetles, um, and all of the other, you know, position within the food chain, really, even stuff like mosquitoes, which everybody hates, but they're so important for other life forms on the planet. Mm. I do think that lockdown and COVID has actually helped people understand a bit more because we've had to start taking more interest in nature on our doorstep. And because of that, people have, I think, started to have a little bit more interest in bugs yeah. and things that are around them because they're seeing them about more. And I think that has helped. And I mean, you know, certainly that and the reports of decline of insects across the globe that have come in have very much helped with bringing in more members and more funding in the last couple of years for the organisation. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, another big problem we have is you know, the planning situation and people wanting to build on sites. And particularly, uh, it's been the mantra of most of the political parties to build on brownfield first. Yeah, rather than building on Greenbelt. And yet... You know, so, so, can I, so can I stop you there? Surely, you know, I mean, building on Brownfield first, surely the case has been made, and it's a quantifiable case, that, you know, Brownfield is is absolutely fantastic for an invertebrate life. Has that, I assume that's just got... You don't get space to make that point of view, or you make that point of view and they don't listen. Is that what's happening? Yeah, I mean, we... we we did a report um, on brownfield sites in the Thames Gateway, and five years down the line, we revisited that report, and over 50% of the sites that have been identified as important for invertebrates of brownfields in the Thames Gateway had by that stage either been built on or had planning permission to build on them. Mm. Uh, and that's just in a five-year time period. So there's this big push to build on brownfields, and it's partly because voters don't like the idea of cities expanding into the green belt even though the sad reality is that most green belt is pretty monoculture uh, farmland that has got very little biodiversity value yeah. and it would be far better for wildlife if we did expand into green belt than we dump all the brownfields it's not to say every brownfield site is fantastic there are some ones that have very little value but some of our most important sites in this country are brownfields and we're forever having to fight to save these key sites. But we also had to fight to save rural sites. We had a long battle to save a place called Cool Links in Scotland, uh, which is this dune structure on the coast there. And it's basically the only place in the entire world that this endemic species called Fonseca seed fly is found. Mm. And they want to build a golf course there, as if there aren't enough golf courses, links courses along the Scottish coast as it is. And um, fought a very long planning battle, which we won. Uh, with support from other NGOs, uh, there are rumours that they're going to put in another planning case for us. And this is the other problem. You can fight a planning application, you can win the battle, and then the developer can come back with a slightly different plan, and you've got to fight that battle all over again. It's not like you fight the battle and they say, no, you can't build on there, and, th and, and then that piece of site is protected for not being built on. It just means the developer has to go away and come back with something else to do on it. And put it forward again and it's just you know drip 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 attrition mm. um, i mean in the past we saved candy wick or a large portion of the candy wick site which was another really important brownfield and that's now a nature reserve which we manage alongside the rspb and recently we actually had another about 100 acres have been added to that site which will be opening soon they've got to be made safe because they say it's a brownfield and there's some quite dangerous sort of things that people could fall and hurt themselves on on the site yeah. as opposed to 
you know, nasty chemicals. Um, we also fought a very good campaign to try and save West Thurrock Marshes, again, a really important brownfield site in the Thames Gateway. Um, where we won an award from the Guardian for the campaign to save that, we actually lost that, although in the end around about 30 hectares were saved and that is now a nature reserve which sadly nobody can visit because it's slap in the middle of an industrial estate with nowhere to park and no proper access to it. Yeah. But at least that small bit of habitat was saved. And then specifically to West Farrock, I mean again have you, have you been able to go back and say still see that you know the numbers of invertebrates are still there it's still a viable um you know nature reserve yeah i mean west surrock is particularly important for a number of very rare species including the distinguished jumping spider um a lot of the tiger beetles can also be found there uh, and of course the shrill carder bee and we have been back we are able to go back and check on the site and it has been doing quite well but it's again it's a site that's always under under threat because it's snapping this industrial estate and then you've got talks of new Thames crossings coming in and all of those things could potentially impact on that very very precious and valuable site. Mm. It's just a constant challenge isn't it this constant strive for infinite development and uh, and you would hope that in the planning system there can be mechanisms to you know protect wildlife I mean, I mean, what what is your hope about that? Well, we need a we need a better planning system, whereby I think if you get defeated on the grounds of of the importance of the site for nature, that should basically put a moratorium on putting forward more plans for that particular site, rather than people just going back and putting in. Well, here's a slightly different plan, or here's a modified one. Look, we're saving this little acre here, which is the best part of it, and building a big uh, dome all around there, or something like that, which is what tends to happen now. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that needs to happen when these sites do get the go ahead to be built on and, you know, yeah, they have to carry out mitigation. Mm. Mitigation land is only protected for 10 years and 10 years down the road. Um, I've mitigated there. I now want to build on that site. Well, that's fine. Yeah, you can build on it because it'd be very hard to fight people building on that site because it's very unlikely that the mitigation site is going to be of the high quality that the land that's already been lost was. Yeah. Uh, plus, there's also been situations, and it's happened recently in Tilbury Marshes, uh, when the yeah. Port of Tilbury decided to expand, uh, destroyed another fantastic brownfield site. We fought a long, hard campaign, but it was declared national infrastructure to make a lorry park for container lorries to use Tilbury Port. Um, Mitigation for that is being put on a site that five years ago had mitigation for another development. So you can put one mitigation yeah. on top of another mitigation. So there, there is no real protection. And they talk about net biodiversity gain, but there isn't. Not when you're putting the so-called gain on top of another site and you're only protecting it for 10 years. There's no real gain there. The whole system is, is, is rotten and it needs to be radically reformed. I mean, it's similar to the process with pesticides and pesticide approval. Again, you know, we should be exercising the precautionary principle. We shouldn't just say, oh, it's safe to put out there because it doesn't harm honeybees because you haven't actually looked at what effect it might be having on our native wild pollinators. Yeah. And, you know, it's exactly the same problem with the planning system. It's, it's not fit for purpose if that purpose is to truly protect stuff of importance. Mm. So, 
I mean, I didn't realise that mitigation land was only there to, for ten years. So, so are you? So you're, you so you see that? So a lot of off-site mitigation is just it's just a tick box exercise where you know there's a piece of land, perhaps unconnected geographically, unconnected to the to to, uh, to to the site you're dealing with, and it's just put on as a tick box exercise. Is, is that what you're saying? That's basically what happens for the mitigation. Yeah, and and then it can be in ten years' time they can do what they want with it. It's a, it's a real shame. But I mean, again, if you cut down a really valuable ancient tree, you'll probably be fined a couple of thousand pounds for it. And, yeah. and that's it. But the tree's out of the way and you can build there. If you were to knock down an important listed monument, you'd have to pay a fine and put that monument back together. But you mm. can't put the tree back together. So again, you know, unscrupulous developers can get away with wrecking stuff in in the name of okay, we'll pay a small fine for wrecking it, but then we can develop our multi-million pound complex. Yeah. So again, the, yeah, the system does not protect nature. No. And like you say, I mean, the, the, I mean, there's many, I mean, for, on the example of trees, there's many examples of, you know, how you, how you, how you put a value to a tree, but there's never going to be, never anywhere going to be a deterrent, is it? It's just... Um, I guess if you, if they, I guess if they looked at the overall aspect and the the multitude of actual value it provides, you know, I don't know, like giving us oxygen, f filtrating our water, um, I can't, you know, I, I struggle to see why that isn't overlooked or or a massive value, monetary value is put on those ecosystem services. It just it amazes me. Yeah, but the point is, you would have to put a massive figure on it to deter people from developing the site wouldn't you because you know if i'm going to get multiple millions of pounds for developing a site i'm not going to quibble at paying a few thousand or tens of thousands of pounds in fines out no but, uh, no yeah. so but some of the successes um that bug life have had so you've been doing uh um what was it the 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 campaign on um neocotinoids and that and that was well that that was a success but they tried to provide i saw in the news uh, last year they tried to bring it back on license for for uh, the sugar beet so gladly that got knocked back yeah so we, we have over the years campaigned a lot on pesticides our first big campaign was actually a, a pesticide called cypromethrin which was a, a ingredient used in sheep dip Mm. And we had a look into this and basically discovered that one drop of it getting into a stream would wipe out all the invertebrate life in that stream for around 10 kilometres downstream where that drop got in the, the water system. So it was having a potentially devastating effect on life in our freshwater streams and rivers. And of course, if you take out the invertebrates, you're also going to have a knock on effect on the fish and, and everything else in that river system. Yeah. So we discovered this, we put this forward, and after a number of years of campaigning on it, it's actually ended up being globally banned from being used in sheep dip. It is still actually used in a couple of products, but it's not used in sheep dip anymore because of the campaign we fought. After the success of that campaign, we then started to look at the neonicotinoid pesticides. Now, one of the problems with those is that they were basically being used just to treat everything, seed coating it so plants grew up with it in them um, 
and it has a half-life of about two years. So it's going to be a very, very long time before it disappears from the soil and it's been put in there. But what we had was these treated seeds drilled into the ground. If you've ever sort of seen people putting seeds into the ground, you know, there was this like this white dust came off. And depending on which way the wind blew, that would then go all over the nearby hedgerow. And of course, this coincided with the time when farmers were getting little subsidies to plant small areas of wildflowers around the edge of their fields. Mm. It sounds like a really good idea until you thought, so they're planting these wildflowers and then they're sowing these poison seeds in the field and then the, the poison that's been put on these seeds as you sow them is coming out as this dust and it's going all over the wildflowers so you've produced something that looks really, really inviting to pollinators but is absolutely lethal to them. So mm. it's a double whammy really, uh, just lack of joined up thinking. Uh, but the good thing about it is that we eventually managed to get neonicotinoid pesticides banned by the European Union um, and they're no longer allowed to be used in Europe and they're also currently no longer allowed to be used in the UK because we haven't yet diverged from that EU ruling about their usage. It is something that every year though there are, there's a, a strong lobby comes from the farming community in all of the nations of Europe really mm. to say can we have dispensation to use them on sugar beet or rapeseed or whatever the particular product they want to use them on is? And they say, you know, our, our um, harvest of rapeseed is going to be destroyed if we don't have it to deal with the flea beetles. Now, what happens with rape is a flea beetle will go on it and it nibbles away and the odd flower head drops off. What does rape do? It puts more flower heads on. Mm. So you don't actually, unless you've got a huge infestation of them, it doesn't have a negative effect and what has been found by looking at yields of rapeseed oil subsequent to the ban coming in is that the average yield has gone up per hectare so they're actually getting more and that's because it's getting pollinated better than mm. it was when it was all poisonous for pollinators to get on now the downside for, from a farming perspective is there are the odd farmer and field that has been very very badly hit they've had a really bad infestation of these beetles and their crop has been negligible but majority farmers have had bumper crops as a result of the ban and, and this is often the case with these chemicals because you know farmers are encouraged to use these things they thought well, this is the next best thing this is the new thing to use and they start yeah. using these chemicals when in fact if they hadn't been using them at all, they may well have been doing a lot better with their yields, but it's all sort of new gizmo, come and get it, and a lot of marketing push behind it. And and I guess f following on from that, I guess that um, biological controls, that's, that's a lot, I mean, in, in your experience, how much IPM um, do farmers really, really use, or, or not at all? Um, the short answer is definitely not enough. Uh, there are some farmers who are moving towards that kind of activity, uh, and it is very, very effective. Uh, but I mean, I saw 20 odd years ago now out in Ethiopia, I'm visiting a farming project there. And, and what had happened there was that uh, the pesticide and uh, fertilizer companies had come in there and basically they'd given people free chemicals and free fertilizers for about five years. So all the farmers started using that. Now, average life expectancy there is 47. It doesn't take long before all the traditional methods of dealing with problems have disappeared. Mm -hmm. Now, these chemicals, they then started to charge for. 
And your average farmer over there basically has an area about the size of two football pitches. So it's a tiny amount of land they have to eat a living out of. Their average income per annum is $100. But they were now spending $25 per annum on chemicals. $25 they could ill afford. And I saw a fantastic project where they basically got elders from the villages together to train the younger farmers in how they used to deal with stuff and there was all sorts of stuff going like there were people running around with buckets collecting cow urine and then fermenting it and that makes a really fantastic spray for dealing with aphids over there and it's just bringing back all these old methods of dealing with things mm. that had just been lost in that short time period and okay it's taken a lot longer for that knowledge to be lost in you know European countries but that knowledge has been gradually lost uh, apart from a few great exceptions and we really need to be trying to sort of recapture that because a lot of these chemicals are not needed on necessary plus the more you go down that route the more you have to put on every year because the natural goodnesses are no longer getting into the soil if you're spraying off to kill a particular pest on your crop it's almost certainly killing all of the lovely things that work in the soil to increase its nutrient levels. So you're going to now to bring on much more fertilizer. So mm. it's a vicious circle that you know people have been trapped into following and thinking is the right thing to do. Yeah. And although although your answer, although we're talking about agriculture as well, I mean, I think uh, horticulture, you know, is dealing with has been dealing with the same issues as well, where it's there's always the product to kill you know, to kill whatever, whatever nasty bug they, you know, we've got to kill, which we don't have to kill. So yeah, I, I mean, it's the horticultural industry as well has got to, um, has got to, you know, change, change the way we operate. Um, but no, so you see, so had a great success with that. Um, uh, but one thing I would, I'd love to talk about, uh, Paul is, um, is an issue about the uh, swamps and Swanscombe uh, Peninsula, because we chatted about this the other day, and I and I think that we all need to get the message out there. Um, do you want to just give a bit of background on what's happening on the Swanscombe, Swanscombe Peninsula? Um, yeah, just give us a bit of background on on what's happening over there. So the Swanscombe Peninsula uh, has been described in the words of Natural England themselves as probably the most important site for invertebrates in the whole of the united kingdom so can you just can you can you say that once more is that naturally a government department and this has said that out loud and, yeah, and they have said it is probably the most important site for invertebrates in the whole of the united kingdom and definitely the most important site in england it has got 250 species of invertebrate or over 250 species of invertebrate on the site that are on the danger lists. It has got almost 50 species on the site that are on the red list of extreme danger of extinction. Mm. That's how important it is for invertebrates. It has 84 breeding pairs of birds as well, including nightingales and peregrines. So you know, it's got a huge amount of diversity. It's got some really rare orchids on this site. So it's not just about inverts, but you know, inverts is what I'm here to talk about. And it is also what the site is most important for. Yeah. Now, it's an absolutely beautiful site. It borders onto the Thames. The bit of the Thames it borders onto is actually a marine conservation zone for some of the invertebrates that live in the Thames estuary there. If you go straight across the Thames, you actually end up at 
West Thurrock Marsh is another fantastic site for invertebrates. So it's part of a, a real hub of important biodiversity value for this country. You know, it is, you know, if we were somewhere like Tanzania, this, this is the kind of place that would become a game reserve because it's really, really important. It's you know, one of our most important sites, but because it's just invertebrates, the um, company called the London Resort decided they want to build a theme park there um, because okay. that's what we need, isn't it? A theme park. We have one of the most fantastic sites for nature in the world on our doorstep, but we need to turn it into a theme park. I'm going to have a sort of space world, going to be dinosaurs there. So that's great, isn't it? Yeah. And to extinguish and make extinct some of our most rare animals to bring a theme park with dinosaurs in it. And, okay, so who, um, remind me, who owns uh, London Resort? Where, well, what's, uh, what's that about? So well, London Resort is, a, is, is the development company. And um, it's a, is it P.Y. Gerberg, I think is the man who's, who's behind that, who was also the man behind the Millennium Dome and other such projects. And so he's kind of leading that company. But the main protagonists are the BBC and ITV um, and some independents who are basically looking to have studios and themed areas there. So I don't know, maybe we'll have a Doctor Who zone there or something like that, perhaps. It, it's, it's going to basically be themed around, yeah, they have a series of different zones and they're likely to be themed around the various television programmes. Okay, so so where do we, okay, oh, that's just, it's just, it's just terrible. So where do we go from here? What, 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 what can be done? what kind of recourse is there? I mean, what is Natural England's, correct me if I'm wrong, they want to make it a triple SI or it is a triple SI? So we, we contacted Natural England and asked them to make this site into a triple SI, site of special scientific interest. And they had a think about it and then they basically agreed. So at the moment it is a triple SI designate um, okay. So it has the same protections as the SSSI, whilst Natural England carry out a public consultation on its status. And that consultation ends on the 12th of July. Okay. And I would really urge anybody who listens to this podcast to have a look. We've got a page on our website that talks about this process and how you can get involved. There's a questionnaire that you can fill in and send back to Natural England all about why you think this site should be a triple SI. So particularly if you live local to the area or if you're someone who knows a lot about nature, conservation, ecology, or you just feel really strongly about it, please write in in support of this site becoming a triple SI. Hopefully we will get the triple SI. We are pretty confident we will, uh, but the more support we can get at this stage, the better. Of course, becoming a triple SI doesn't necessarily save the site but it makes the case for retaining it that much stronger. Okay, so so you're so becoming a triple SI, um, you know, we give it a, a, a sort of legal consideration within the planning. But um, how how much in your experience, how much is does how much weight does that actually hold? Because correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, this lovely theme park is is wouldn't go through then wouldn't go for the original sort of planning system it's going to go through uh, potentially the 
the infrastructure uh, the sorry the infrastructure um fund or sorry the infrastructure so yeah, the, the, yeah. this this um site is somehow being allowed to progress as a, a national infrastructure project okay. um how a theme park can be considered now this was a piece of legislation that was originally brought in to enable governments to get on with things like building an m25 or high speed 2 etc so yeah. you know some of those things are pretty dubious but they were something obvious and national infrastructure um, the tilbury marshes case that we talked about that was also a national infrastructure project because it was an expansion of a national port yeah how is a theme park considered to be a national infrastructure project? I might as well just say, I'm going to build a housing estate. That's a national infrastructure project. And the big problem with national infrastructure projects is they bypass most of the planning hurdles. Because normally your first hurdle is to get local authority approval and it brings in local accountability. This bypasses all of that. You have a planning inspectorate looks at the cases makes a recommendation to the minister and then the minister says yes i agree with my inspectors or no i don't agree with my inspectors and makes a judgment and that's it and then the only recourse beyond that is to go for a judicial review and of course judicial reviews have become harder harder to to get nowadays and have become more and more costly mm. basically you've got to prove that something untoward has been done which you know, I think we would have a good case on the fact that how can you call this a national infrastructure project when it's a private company creating a theme park? Um, I'm just curious. Uh, the I guess in the legislation, has it got quite ambiguous wording? As in, it doesn't state what would be classed as as infrastructure. Is that how they? Is that is that the sort of the wordplay that? that that's the main get out. The other, the other get out they're using is because they're saying, well, you know, we're going to improve the roads and things in the area to enable access. And they're also talking about you know, increasing the train capacity in the area. So they are going to add to national infrastructure as a side offshoot of creating the theme park. But this is a private development. Mm. Yeah, the Thames Crossing, the you know, the, the, the pro proposed new Thames Crossing crossing that's going in that's a national infrastructure project which is also going into the same part of the world of course mm. but at least you can understand okay so it's a major road yeah i can understand that's national infrastructure but the theme park it beggars belief that that is considered national infrastructure we've also started up a petition uh, to basically try and save the site and we would also welcome anyone who would like to to go and sign that petition we've got probably around 25,000 signatories on it, but we you know, really want to get that up past 100,000 and beyond to, to show the level of support there is for not developing this site. Now, we don't necessarily have anything against a theme park, but it's completely the wrong place to have one. Mm. There must be other more suitable sites in the area that they could pick rather than destroying this invaluable area of nature because We'll never get that back if they destroy it. And you know, not only are they going to destroy the on-land bit, they're talking about putting a terminal in for ferries to go across the Thames to Essex. And that's going to impact on the marine conservation zone as well. Mm. So it's a huge detrimental effect. So a huge detrimental, a huge detrimental effect. But also, are they not going against other 
you know, about climate change goals, biodiversity goals, which are in statute. I mean, is, is it not just a, a, a slap in the face to, to, you know, to their stated goals in those departments as well? You would certainly think it is. You, how, how can you reconcile that with those other girls? How can you reconcile that with, you know, taking on this lead role at the COP coming up? Yeah, and mm. when you're actually you know raping and destroying your own country. Yeah. But there again, this is the same government that was talking about opening another coal mine at the same time, isn't it? It's um, says one thing, does a completely different thing, and somehow people just seem to fall in line and not complain about it. It's 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 ridiculous, and and also this is a decision that's going to be made by a minister who has past history of granting applications for party donors yeah. to, to build in sensitive areas. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask who he is because I don't want to give him, um, I don't, yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on from, from him uh, and the situation. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I think we, we probably first need to address basically what's going on. And the sad reality is we are suffering massive declines of insects yeah globally and locally uh, and all the indicators are showing massive decline in worst case scenario we're looking at potentially 40 percent of species of invertebrate becoming extinct by about 2050 if action doesn't get taken to reverse these trends so first off we really need to ask ourselves what are the causes of this so they are manifold um First and foremost, it's called loss of habitat. And alongside that loss of habitat, it's a loss of connectivity between habitat. Mm. So you might have one really great piece of habitat, such as Swanscombe Marshes. But the next really great piece of habitat is too far away for things to travel between the two. Uh, so you basically isolate it, which makes you very, very vulnerable to a natural disaster or a human-made disaster on that site chemical spillage a fire a flood anything like that and you could wipe out those populations because they can't get away they can't get anywhere else hmm. climate change is having a big impact also on invertebrates um, bumblebees are a classic example bumblebees do not like it hot if you go down to the mediterranean the two species of them you move to more temperate countries like the uk we've got 25 but as things continue to warm up they will want to move northwards no connectivity they can't move northwards they're under a lot of stress we may lose species because mm. of that and then the other big whammy that's really hitting our invertebrates is pollution now we've talked about pesticides that's part of pollution but there are other forms of pollution as well and light pollution is a, is a huge source of problems for invertebrates uh, okay so for for the people that don't know i mean i think you know if we look at our if we look at our sort of our cities our landscapes um you know we perhaps we don't think about it you know we want everything to be lit we want to show off trees we want to show off our buildings i guess there's an perhaps an overuse of using lighting for safety but what is it if you tell the viewers what is it that the light is actually doing to invertebrates Basically, it confuses them. Um, it makes it very, very difficult. A lot of invertebrates are nocturnal, things like moths. And mm. um, 
if, if you're in a house with the window open and you've got a bright light on, you'll see all the moths come around your light. So the same effect is going on outdoors. Uh, other species are dependent upon the dark really to find mates and to breed, things like glowworms. Mm. Or because of the glowworm as it glows, it attracts the male, the male comes in and they're able to reproduce. Glowworm numbers are in sharp decline. One of the reasons for this is because they can't find one another anymore because of the huge amount of background light that's going on. Mm. And it also, because they tend to cluster around lights and things, it makes a lot of the invertebrates far more at risk from things like bats and other nighttime predators because they've got wise to the fact that, ooh, if I pop around that lion, there'll be lots and lots of things around there that I can tastily eat up without mm. having to expend so much energy. Yeah. So it's, it's a sort of double whammy in that effect. Um, mm -hmm. Now, obviously, people are concerned from safety perspective about lighting, but we also need to think about how what we're doing is impacting. And, and if you think about it, the majority of lights spray light everywhere rather than just directionally. So that's the first thing we could think about is directional use of lights. We also, as individuals, should think about our own lighting. The number of people who fill their gardens with lights and you know, halogen lamps that you know, light the whole neighbourhood up, <laughs> it's actually really necessary. And even uh, there's been a huge number of people who bought these solar-powered lights that they put around their garden because, oh, it's nice, isn't it? And they're solar, so you feel good and green about it. But it's not actually particularly green because you're creating a lot of light pollution yeah. Uh, which is causing a lot of trouble to our native species and um, mm. without actually really benefiting you particularly other than thinking I've done something good when you haven't done something good by putting in this solar lighting. So we all really need to think about our lighting. We also need to think about the use of street lighting. Are the better ways you know, on, a, on a policy perspective that street lighting could work? Can it work on some form of motion sensor where the lights maybe one or two ahead and two behind somebody come on and go off as people move along the street mm. in order to provide that protection for people from you know unfortunately being generally attacked by other humans but at the same time not impact so badly on our natural world around us and um and is that one of the campaigns that Bug Life will move on to, or are you are you are you, are you talking to um, sort of uh, councils, county councils, highways about the amount of light pollution? We are starting conversations with various bodies about light pollution. We're also talking to Forest Green Rovers Football Club about light pollution um, to try and get them on board. Well, they've are basically given an indication they want to try and do something to see how can you improve the situation for football grounds. And of course, there's an awful lot of sports grounds all across the country, not just the professional ones, but you know, all weather pitches that have all this massive lighting on them all the time. Can we look at trying to make that more directional so that we light the pitch, but we don't light the whole area around it. And we don't create this massive glow in the sky, which mm. also causes impacts on, you know, people's ability to see the night sky if yeah. you go outside with all that glow there there is so little you can see you know we've all heard about dark skies and anyone who's been in a dark sky area or you know been in some of the more developing countries of the world where you get dark skies the clarity you get in that night sky is absolutely fantastic mm. 
the impact that a shooting star has in one of these really dark places is is is, is incredible this massive luminescence and we miss all of that because of all this pollution we've got going on around us and there's another form of human-made pollution that may well be having an impact and that is of course is all of the electromagnetic radiation that's created from our use of mobile phones and wireless networks now mm. there is not a proven case there but the point is work has not been done to find out what is its impact on invertebrates yeah. and i would just urge that again we start thinking about the precautionary principle you don't just rush to do something until you've really tested it out and found out what its wider impacts are going to be mm. yeah um yeah it doesn't seem like we're in a society that uses the precautionary principle really but um but you i mean it must have an impact you know the amount of the amount of electrical waves, mag, magnetic waves, four G, five G, different frequencies. It's got to be interesting. It's got to. Be, I, well, I mean, they know they know that sonar and all of that sort of stuff has had a tremendous impact on whales mm. and, and our use of you know waves in the water. So you would imagine that our use of these magnetic waves. In, in our airwaves are probably having a similar impact on certain species because mm. a lot of species generally use some form of magnetic fields as their way of navigating and these are constantly changing by our use of all of these different methods now they are very convenient to use um, and, I'm, and i'm sure we all use them but have we ever really thought about what their impact is before we've opened them up and gone down the route of let's bring in the next generation of it and so forth there's yeah. no studies been done there's no proper research in there and yet we've been using this stuff for long enough now that that research should have been done that evidence should be there and yeah. if the evidence is clear that there is no problem then we have absolutely no problem with it but we just feel that that research needs to be done and we potentially need to put a break on developing more stuff and moving forward until we know what impact we're having. Mm. Very true. So, Paul, um, thank you very much for uh, doing the podcast. Um, before before you go, do you just want to give um, uh, sort of a little shout out? So, where can people find about find out about Bug Life? Where people perhaps can find you? Um, yeah, just to give a sort of a sort of a final book note to the uh, to, to, to the end of the podcast. So, if any of the things we've been talking about are of interest to you, if you go to www.buglife.org.uk, you'll find a whole host of information. There's a detailed lighting report. There's lots of information about Swanscombe Marshes, what's going on there, and there's also a lot of information about this great project called Beelines, which is all about putting connectivity back into our country to enable pollinators and other bugs and generally wildlife to be able to move around the country in the way that our trains and our cars are able to now so a huge amount of information there www.buglife.org.uk top man paul thanks very much for doing this appreciate your time you're welcome excellent cheers yeah we didn't know i'm just i'm just want to stop record okay. sorry sorry i i don't know how else to uh, stop